On May 5th, U.S. President Joe Biden's government reversed a stance it had been holding for months. The White House now says that it supports waiving the intellectual property protections for the COVID-19 vaccines. The U.S. is only the latest in more than 100 countries to back waiving intellectual property protections for vaccines. But the activists who push for such a move say there's still lots left to be done. It is a great first step in a marathon. The World Trade Organization will continue to negotiate over these waivers, and it could take months before they reach a conclusion. So how did these negotiations turn into a life-or-death matter for billions of people around the world? I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. To learn more about why these trade deals have become a public health issue, I talked to someone who's been following them for a long time. I'm Achal Prapala. I'm a public health activist. I work on access to medicines. And now I coordinate a project called Access Ipsa that works on campaigns in India, Brazil, and South Africa. Over the last year, I've turned my attention to access to COVID vaccines. When I spoke to Achal, it was around 6 p.m. in Bengaluru, in India's Karnataka state, where he's based. Right now, he's living under lockdown as the pandemic kills thousands of people a day in his country. Karnataka has announced a complete lockdown. Karnataka currently has a positivity rate of 30%. I've never been through anything like this. It's never been this close to home. Every single day, it's news of somebody dying or somebody in hospital who needs something. What's happening in India is heartrending and unbelievable and really difficult to live through. But it has two clear ways in which things like this can be prevented. Either you have the kind of draconian lockdown that we've just entered, and literally the only thing other than using military police as they are out on the road right next to where I live to keep people off the streets is mass vaccination. But those mass vaccination efforts around the world have been lopsided. Across the global south, health workers are being killed by a virus from which their counterparts in rich countries are largely protected. So the reason that the UK is opening up The U.S. is opening up that life is limping back to normalcy is because of these incredibly high vaccination rates. We have a resurgence in India because 2% of our country is fully vaccinated. What's happening here can happen absolutely anywhere else that's vaccinated as much as us. This could happen in Nigeria. This could happen in Kenya. This could happen in South Africa. That's the really terrifying part of it. So what's the major barrier to getting the world vaccinated? There just aren't any. And this is literally how simple it is. All of the Western vaccines that have been created, with the exception of one, have been made primarily for the West. And honestly, these vaccine manufacturers are struggling to supply even the West. Those vaccines include Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson. It also includes AstraZeneca, which is the exception that Achal is talking about. A version of that vaccine is produced in India. Now, there are vaccines from China and Russia that have filled a gap really usefully But they are seen somewhat unfairly as being less reliable than the Western vaccines. And so vaccines like the ones made by Moderna and J&J, they still retain an edge. They're the vaccines that the world wants, but no one in the world currently can have. So it seems like a fairly simple explanation. There just aren't enough vaccines. So that's where we get into this patent waiver process. Can we talk about the U.S. government decision that just happened after 
quite a bit of public pressure, the U.S. government agreed to back talks about a potential patent waiver. And I guess a lot of this stems from a proposal put forth by India and South Africa back in October. Can you tell us about that? South Africa and India made a proposal in October to suspend pharmaceutical monopolies for treatments and vaccines during the pandemic. And this proposal was pretty globally popular outside of a handful of countries, including, until this month, the U.S. A push by over 100 nations for the World Trade Organization to waive intellectual property rules that give pharmaceutical companies monopolistic control over vaccines. All we're asking for is for them to share the recipe to make this vaccine so that it can be made elsewhere and supplied to people for whom this is an issue of life and death. We'll come back to what this vaccine recipe is in just a minute. But first, let's look at the timeline. This proposal was put forth in October of 2020. The Biden administration said it would back negotiations around May of 2021. And now the World Trade Organization says it expects to finalize some kind of negotiation in December. I don't fully understand what the calculation is in the heads of people who make such decisions in terms of you know, the kinds of stories they must be preparing already to tell their children and grandchildren about this. Well, oh, yes, there was this incredible emergency back in 2021. And I acted with great urgency to say six and a half months after the proposal was floated that we'd take another seven months to decide what kind of text there would be in it. So why exactly are these negotiations taking place at the World Trade Organization at all? It comes back to that vaccine recipe. The vaccine recipe consists of two ingredients. One of those ingredients is the legal rights to make the vaccine. And then the second ingredient is a guide to making the vaccine. You could call it vaccine technology, but it's really just a manual, right, as to how you make this vaccine. It's the first part, those legal rights, that's being negotiated in this whole waiver discussion. That right is what we're trying to gain by suspending pharmaceutical monopolies at the World Trade Organization, because those rights are contained in these mysterious objects of the law called patents. And and patents, for those who don't know, and I, I just want to say here, by the way, that I've devoted the last 20 years of my life to this. I think no one should devote any part of their life to this. So I, I have every sympathy with anybody who does not know what patents are. You're on the right track. Patents are these temporary monopolies that governments provide in exchange for innovation. So if you create something new, like a new drug or a new vaccine, the state says, oh, you took a lot of trouble, you did very good work, you risked your time, perhaps your own money, and we're going to give you a reward, which is only you can make this thing for the next 20 years, right? Which means you alone have the right to profit off it in the short run. But patents haven't always been a fact of the pharmaceutical industry. Think back to another, older vaccine. Newest miracle, the Salk anti-polio vaccine. In the 1950s, Jonas Salk, the inventor of the polio vaccine, famously had this to say about patenting his discovery. Who owns the patent on this vaccine? Well, the people, I I would say, there is no patent. This is, could you patent the sun? (laughs) But things changed after a few decades. And in the 1980s, the U.S. and the U.K., both decided that private companies could patent drugs developed using publicly funded research. All the taxpayer money that goes into creating drug development would then just be handed over to a corporation to finish up and put out, which means that you can take as much taxpayer money as you like, but then you can fully treat it as a private product that you, yourself, and no one else made (laughs) to put out and re-profit on. 
drug companies enjoyed that privilege in the 1980s. And by the 1990s, I think they felt, look, the system is working so well in the United States and the United Kingdom and Europe. Um, let's try to collect rent from elsewhere in the world. And that timed up perfectly with the creation of the World Trade Organization in 1995. The WTO will stand side by side with the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund as part of a new global economic structure. Because up to that point, uh, intellectual property had existed and patents had existed, but countries could decide what they wanted to do. They used their sovereign power to decide what sovereign interest was, and then they figured it out and had laws according to what they needed. After 1995, after the World Trade Organization was created, countries lost that power. They ceded that power through a WTO agreement called the Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights. It's also known as TRIPS, and it protects intellectual property internationally. Hello and welcome to WTO Forum. Today's topic, does the so-called TRIPS agreement strike the right balance between the rights of patent holders and the rights of national governments? Several countries were against the idea of including intellectual property in trade negotiations. But the U.S. and some other countries lobbied aggressively for it. So the U.S. decision to support this waiver is incredibly historic. They've always been on the wrong side of this debate. But I do feel actually churlish to mention that there's a lot that has to be done. It started. It's great. It's a turning point. But I cannot help but think of the number of things that are left to be done in order to make billions more vaccines. One of those things is to actually get the waiver passed through the WTO. You know, the World Trade Organization works on something that they call consensus, which means every participating member country has to agree on a proposal before it's passed. And right now, several countries aren't thrilled about this waiver, like Germany. Here's what Chancellor Angela Merkel had to say after Biden's announcement. I made it clear that I do not believe that giving away patents is the solution to make vaccines available to more people. Merkel also said that if the patents were given away, there could be issues with quality control. That argument is often used in the U.S. too, but some activists have been pushing back against it. We heard from one of them. Hi, I'm Preeti Krishtel. I'm a founder and co-executive director at IMAC, an organization working to address structural inequities in the ways in which medical products are developed and distributed. Preeti says the Biden announcement was great, historic even. But she wants it to be followed up with action. What we need to see next are transparent, quick and fair negotiations between all the countries so that we can quickly agree on the terms of the waiver and so we can move forward to scale manufacturing and save as many lives as possible. Now we know that the pharmaceutical industry will have a significant influence on the conversations. They already are here in the United States. One argument is somehow that sharing the patents or the vaccine recipes could make these vaccines less safe. It is absolutely not true. That argument has been made before, Preeti says, with other medicines and vaccines in the past. And time and time again, manufacturers in low and middle income countries have proven the American pharmaceutical industry wrong. They have proven the European pharmaceutical industry wrong. And they have produced at scale, safely, for a more affordable price. So we have to be very careful in terms of what arguments are we listening to that are being advanced. I also talked to Achal about some of the arguments being made against the waiver. 
I want to ask you about the pharmaceutical industry. They've been using some fairly strong language in their opposition. I think the head of the International Pharma Trade Association said that if a waiver went through, not a single more vaccine would reach a person during the pandemic. It would send a bad signal for the future. I mean, it's like, hey, we had a nice solution to this pandemic. It would be a shame if anything happened to it, right? And Pfizer's CEO said that, you know, that, that intellectual property is the blood of the private sector. I, I went to the Pfizer website and I go to some of these websites and you see the language that they use about saving the world and, and public health. Yet they're fighting this tooth and nail behind the scenes with armies of lobbyists. Is that correct? Armies of lobbyists. That's absolutely correct. The one argument that's coming from the pharmaceutical industry is that maybe this might do something in this pandemic, but you better watch out for the next pandemic because we won't be there to make your vaccines. And I'm just thinking, well, okay, so what you're saying is that it might help us save between two and a half and three million lives this year, as well as rescue economic losses of between two and ten trillion dollars, as estimated by the International Chambers of Commerce, which are not exactly, you know, your leftist think tank. Well, let's sacrifice that for the moment because let's think ahead. Right? <laughs> Man, uh, that is a ridiculous argument. But also, like, we will get vaccines the next pandemic in the way we got them this time. And the way we got them this time is through public funding and by paying for them twice, essentially. At least that's what Achil says. So firstly, the AstraZeneca vaccine literally had something like 95% of its research and development publicly financed. Moderna had 100% of its research costs covered by the U.S. Uh, taxpayer. J&J had some ridiculous amount of its research covered with another grant from the U.S. government. Then on top of that, the EU, the U.K., the U.S., they funneled back billions of dollars in these pre-orders, right? Which are just like saying, look, now that you're close to making a vaccine, if you make that vaccine, here's an even bigger pot of gold. Because the Moderna and Johnson & Johnson vaccines were developed with public funds, Achil says the U.S. government can require them to take another step. Share the second part of the vaccine recipe, the manual, with manufacturers abroad. It doesn't require investment. It doesn't require the U.S. government to devote some entire army of people who build these factories, etc. It literally requires them to take the locks off a cage which is guarding this technology and just let that fly away. It's important to emphasize what happened with this vaccine is a miracle. It really is. It's a miracle of modern science. And we have the ability to get out of this thing, but we're not there yet. And I think it's important to remind people who have been vaccinated that if this stuff does not happen, a new variant could come up anytime and progress could be wiped away. Absolutely. And I feel like these pharmaceutical companies are basking in the praise in, in the public while behind the scenes, they're actively campaigning to stop the job from being completed because they're unwilling to settle for just a little bit less. Uh, it's even worse than that, Kevin. So, you know, the kinds of things that come out of Pfizer's PR department should be completely ignored, right? Because, I mean, that's the kind of, you know, magical spin that they put on whatever terrible things Pfizer did the day before. The entire global scientific community is working together to beat this thing. But then there are the earnings calls and the industry conferences where the company seems to speak more candidly. And the true feelings that they expressed this time was that they could create variant-busting boosters and other kinds of reformulations, which they could then continue to be supplying. So in like a very weird way, the pharmaceutical companies who've made the most out of vaccinating people in the US and UK right now are simultaneously preparing to profit off the fact that they denied access to vaccines to me, right? <laughs> the lack of vaccinations elsewhere in the world will not only be something that they have 
allowed to happen through this obsessive control and profit-driven greed, but will profit from themselves in the future because there will continue to be a market around different variants of this coronavirus. But for Achal, the problem isn't just about future variants. It's about what's happening right now in his own community. Kevin, this problem is urgent for me, meaning that it's urgent for me this minute. I'm not, you know, chicken little or whatever it is running around saying the sky is going to fall on my head, but the sky has fallen on my head. I went through some difficult times, actually, in the last couple of weeks. Um, I, I've had a, a, a close relative who was quite young, uh, 34 years old, asthmatic, who died in Delhi, which was very, very hard. But the thing that hit me the hardest, unfortunately, was uh, my parents used to take me to a bookshop that was run by the kindest bookseller in the world. And I, I, I actually been going there since I was born. So, you know, for the better part of 40 plus years. And uh, it, it was more than a bookshop. It was sort of like Alibaba's Cave of Treasures. He was the kindest, decentest man. And whenever I had money after that, I'd just funnel it at him, you know, and I, I loved him deeply. A mutual friend called me to say that he died uh, about four days ago or five days ago uh, from COVID, and it completely broke me. He he really just gave me this window to the world um, at a time when the world was too expensive and too far away and just unreachable for me. And I, I, I can never, ever, ever forget that. And I will never, ever forget the fact that uh, he died of COVID. Oh, man. Well, thank you for sharing that because... It's a, this is about real people's lives, and we'd focus on WTO councils and earnings calls. But this really comes down to people that we love who are dying. It is. It is. And it, I mean, it really, uh, that actually, honestly, just I, I just broke me and I felt so horrible about it. It made it so personal. Um, I, I, you know, I, I just actually can't bear it. I mean, it's like living through kind of a pure sort of utter hell. Uh, and I wanted to stop, and I, I don't want it to happen anywhere else. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliayi, with Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, Dina Kisba, Priyanka Tilvey, Malika Bilal, and me, Kevin Hurton. Tom Fenton is our editor. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Elmi-Lake is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back.